Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today's Thursday, September 24th. New home sales are up, new home supply is down, and we're focused on how America's economic recovery is tied to America's childcare system. Childcare in the U.S. was precarious, at best, before the pandemic. Now, though, it's an outright disaster, with some providers going out of business and many of those that remain under rules that limit the number of children they can care for, thus putting pressure on profit margins, if there were even profits to start with. In fact, one estimate is that 50% of all U.S. childcare facilities won't survive the pandemic. Now, for families that could afford full-time daycare or after-school care, they're often finding themselves shut out, including the parents of older kids whose schools aren't physically open. For parents with fewer financial resources, the situation's even more dire, particularly since it's often these parents whose jobs require them to actually show up in person, not over Zoom. Those with kids know exactly why this crisis matters for them, but for the broader country, the reality is that our economy cannot begin humming while kids aren't being cared for. Yes, there was a proposed $50 billion bailout for the childcare industry, which could have alleviated some of this, but like most other things in D.C. these days, it stalled out. Labor economists have warned for years that systemically devaluing childcare, which is what we do here, could have serious repercussions for the economy at large, and now we're seeing those warnings come to a frustrating fruition. So in 15 seconds, we'll go deeper into the problem and what can be done to turn the tide with Vox senior reporter Anna North. But first, this. We're joined now by Anna North, a senior reporter for Vox and author of the upcoming novel Outlawed. So Anna, from reading your piece, our childcare system was kind of precarious pre-pandemic. From your perspective, how did the pandemic kind of reveal some of those existing cracks in the system? It's almost a misnomer to even say we have a childcare system in America because it's such a patchwork. You know, other countries have a much more robust system for making sure that parents can work and their kids are still taken care of. But here in the U.S., we face this problem where caring for kids well is really expensive. You know, you need low student-to-teacher ratios. You need rent, insurance. You have to make sure that kids are safe. It's very resource-intensive and it doesn't really scale. You know, and then at the same time, you have parents trying to pay for this. So basically the result is parents are paying enormously high fees. And yet because the care is so expensive to provide, the providers aren't really making very much money. The folks who work in childcare centers make very low wages, an average of just over $10 an hour for work that's very difficult. It's really a no-win for anyone here. And then children are also often losing out because there's so much turnover. Workers have no incentive to really stay in the field when they're making so little money. So it's all a mess. And then the pandemic came along and made all of this even worse in a number of ways. But the biggest one was really saying, you know, suddenly these providers lost a bunch of enrollment and that's how they make their money, you know, unless they're subsidized by the state, which is a pretty small number of folks. They make their money from parent fees. If parents aren't paying, they're not able to keep the lights on. Even if parents are paying, say you're a daycare provider and say generally you have 20 kids, which is a kind of large one, right? And you've got the space for 20 kids. In a lot of states now, though, because of social distancing rules, that might have to be maximum 10 or 15 kids. Even if you have the parents who are willing to pay, you can't put the kids in. Has the model, which, as you said, was already difficult financially, has it gone completely upside down for a lot of providers? Yeah, it's so much worse now. 
because exactly what you're saying, because of social distancing, now a lot of places have fewer kids that they can accept. There's all these associated costs, too, with making sure things are safe. We're talking about masks. We're talking about extra cleaning. And, you know, if you have children, you know that little children are really filthy and they lick things. And so the cleaning is just so intense. Places are really having trouble keeping up. There's been surveys saying that enormous percentages of daycares are really struggling to even pay their basic costs right now. You talked about kind of comparing us to other countries where there's a lot more federal subsidies or state subsidies in other countries. Is it simply the subsidy costs? You also talked about how we had high expenses. Does it cost more to actually do to provide daycare here than it does in other countries? Or is it simply who's paying for those costs? I think the biggest issue is who's paying for it. Elsewhere, there's been a bigger push to say this is a social good. We should try to kind of figure out how to make it socially available. Here in the U.S., that hasn't happened for a lot of reasons. You know, I talked to a, someone who studies the history of this for my story, and she made the point that a lot of it is just systemic racism. There has been a sense in America that federal subsidies for childcare have gone towards families of color, and there are white voters who just don't want to pay for that. And so part of the history of this real lack of a social service is also tied up with the history of racism. You talk about the politics of it and voters of this. When you watch the current presidential campaign, obviously state races are a little bit different, but when you watch presidential campaign, even though Biden does have a child care plan, but generally issues of child care, even issues of schools being open or not open, which affects a lot more kids and a lot more parents just percentage wise, it doesn't seem to be coming up. Your thoughts on why that is? It just doesn't seem to be an issue, even though it's impacting so many people right now. I mean, honestly, I've seen it be a bigger issue now than it has in the past. You used to never hear about any of this. I mean, prior to this 2020 election cycle, we barely ever heard about childcare, even though it was this huge problem for so many families and for so many workers. Then you started to hear about it a little more. Senator Warren really put forth this plan that kind of forced other candidates on the record on this. And I really think you started hearing about it a little bit more when it became such a much more visible crisis. I mean, you had, you know, thousands and millions of kids suddenly at home with no care at all. You see kids in the Zoom meetings. You see essential workers not being able to go to their jobs because they have kids at home or having to put their kids in situations that maybe aren't safe. So we certainly haven't seen as much visibility as I think probably needs to be put to the problem, but we've certainly seen more. One of the things you talk about in your story is the state of Vermont and kind of how they've gone through a slightly different model than have most. Can you just unpack that a little bit? What's happening in Vermont? In a lot of places, states are cash-strapped right now, and they've sort of, in some cases, said to daycare providers, you're kind of on your own here. Vermont said, look, we don't want our childcare providers to go out of business. We see what's happening. We see they're losing enrollment. Their costs are going up. How are they going to pay for this? And so Vermont actually told providers, we will subsidize you while you're closed. If you lose enrollment, I mean, some of them had to close. Everyone who wasn't caring for children of essential workers had to close for a period regardless, as was true in many states. And Vermont actually paid while folks were closed. Parents had to pay some, but if parents couldn't pay, Vermont would make up the difference. And then as the providers started to reopen, Vermont actually made available some reopening grants to kind of help them with things like cleaning costs, potentially with still having lower enrollment, because even when places reopen, they're not necessarily getting those kids back. So it wasn't everything that the providers needed, but it was a lot. And it was a lot more than they've received in other places. Can I ask the flip side of that, though? I'm, I'm thinking if I'm a parent and the facility is closed and say I have the means to pay, and I probably do because I've been paying, right? But suddenly I've got my kids at home. It would seem it's the only vendor I would have to keep paying, even though they're not providing me any services. Sure. I mean, it's a weird situation. I can tell you it's one that a lot of families around the country were in. 
I have a kid in daycare. He's actually back now, but we paid while we weren't sending him. But you did that because you wanted to and you wanted to help the center because the state was telling you you had to. It's a different thing. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I guess New York didn't tell us we had to do that. So no, that was a personal decision. Although I think we would have had to withdraw our child. That was the kind of calculus that some parents were struggling with is like sort of paying to hold a spot, hoping that it would become safe. In Vermont, I think the the calculus was that parents would pay 50%, the state would pay the other 50. And if the parents couldn't pay, if they'd lost their jobs, then they could kind of de-enroll the kid from the program and then the state would pay 100. So it was asking private families to pay something, but not everything. Anna, you talked earlier about systemic racism. Let me ask you differently, systemic sexism. It seems there's data showing that even in a heterosexual two-family household where both parents are working from home during the pandemic, women have been shouldering more of the childcare, correct? Yeah, we have good data on that. There's been some pretty thorough reporting in the New York Times and elsewhere showing that, yes, women are shouldering more of the responsibility in heterosexual households. Women are doing more childcare. They're doing more of the sort of homeschooling, and they're also having to take more of a step back from their careers. So, yes, unquestionably, the challenges of this pandemic are falling harder on women. Final question for you. You are uh, queen of the country. There is no Congress. What's the one law or rule you pass to help stem this issue? So there's already in Congress proposals for a $50 billion bailout to the childcare industry. That wouldn't do everything, but it would do a lot to stabilize the industry both now and put it in a better financial position for the future. I think pretty much every childcare expert in the country says that's like a first step. Fantastic. Anna North of Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Apple because some deep-pocketed critics of its app store policies have joined forces. Companies like Spotify, Match Group, which owns Tinder, and Epic Games, which makes Fortnite. Now, both Spotify and Epic already have pending court cases against Apple, and the coalition is basically arguing the same points they make in those lawsuits, that Apple's current app store policies effectively violate antitrust law in terms of such things as the high fees it charges developers, and that Apple shouldn't be allowed to access developer data that it then uses to compete with those developers. So we wanted to ask Sarah Maxwell, a representative for the Coalition for App Fairness, what actually would be fair. Tell me two or three things that you feel are currently unfair the way the Apple App Store works. The current app tax that is charged is extremely high. What's a fairer number? You know, I don't have a magic number, Dan. I I wish I did. No, but if theirs is too high, there's got to be a number that you guys would consider to be, well, fair. I think it's up to Apple to show us what services they're providing that are worth paying 30% for. And I haven't seen that happen today. So I'd love to know, you know, what is within that 30% the cost that they claim that they need to cover in order to charge that fee. Isn't the basic answer that it's not a cost to Apple, it's access? It's access to all of us who have iPhones? I think they position in a number of different ways. They claim that there's certain expenses and overhead in terms of running the ecosystem and App Store that require them to charge 30%. And they have yet to prove why it's so high and whether it needs to stay at that level. It hasn't changed meaningfully since the App Store launched, right? Finally today, we are watching a deal in the local television market where EW Scripps agreed to buy something called Ion Media for $2.6 billion. What's notable here is that Warren Buffett's Berkshire partners helped finance the deal with around $600 million. 
That's the same Warren Buffett who earlier this year sold off all of his local newspaper interests, over 30 papers, which suggests that he believes the future of local news will be watched, not read. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Cherries Jubilee Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.